It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. This is the Unraveled Podcast with hosts Caleb Aring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Caleb Aring. I'm Nicole Richards. And you're listening to Unraveled. Season 1, Episode 4. Before we get into this episode, we want to take a minute to give a little disclaimer. Yeah, I would like to offer even a sort of trigger warning for our upcoming episode, as we are going to be talking about things that were said about the disappearance and murder of Denise Haraway. So a lot of the language that gets used is very graphic and talks about Um, things that were said about her body and violations that were made against her body. So I just want to give listeners a warning that some of the language feels kind of graphic and take care of yourself. In last week's episode, we started by talking a little bit more about the search for Denise and what the police and the community were doing to try and find her. We also talked about the police's search for suspects and how the trail went cold until one day Jeff Miller helped the police zero in on Tommy Ward. When we left off last week, Tommy had just arrived at the police station and was about to go in to answer their questions and clear his name. So when Tommy showed up at the police station, he was given a ride by Jeanette's husband, and his thinking was that he was going to go in, answer some questions, and this was going to be an opportunity for him to clarify any kind of questions that they had or concerns they had about his involvement, basically. Yeah, you know, when we talked about it last week, uh, we had mentioned that Tommy was nervous uh, about just talking to the police in general and Jeanette told him you know go in there and just tell them the truth so that you can clear your name and get this out of the way yeah I mean I think Jeanette and Tommy both had some nervousness around the police they had both had run-ins with the police before and I think but there is this kind of 
thinking that I'm just going to go in, clear this up, and be done with it. And so that's kind of where the story picks up for us today. Tommy shows up at the police station, and Detectives Smith and Baskin are both waiting for him in a room downstairs with videotape equipment. And did Tommy have an attorney with him? No. So he wasn't going in with an attorney. I mean, it sounds like he didn't really think that there was any reason that he needed an attorney. The cops just had a few more questions for him, and he wanted to cooperate and go in and and help the cops in this search and, and also clear his name. Absolutely. It wasn't a concern like I should come in prepared for the worst, though the detectives had a very different plan and a different thinking and thought they were really onto something with this. Dennis Smith goes into immediately the first time he had questioned Tommy about Denise Haraway's disappearance. Because remind you, like, he, Tommy had had a conversation with the police when those sketches first went out. Those sketches went out, all those people called saying Tommy Ward was one of them. Dennis Smith went and spoke to Tommy, and Tommy had a story for what he had done. And so he revisits that first time they had a conversation. Okay. And so just to refresh our listeners' memory, it was right right after Denise had disappeared, I think within a week or less, um, those sketches had gone out, the sketches of the people who were at JP's, not the gentleman who was at McAnally's. And people had called in and said that sketch looked like Tommy Ward. And at that time, the police had asked him where he was, and he had told the police he had gone fishing with his friend Carl Fontenot, and they had gone to a party, and he went home, and that was it. And then the police had tried to follow up with Carl, and Carl was on his way to work, never went in to the police station to talk to them, and they never followed up. And they dropped it. And they dropped it. And so... Dennis Smith starts again just by asking that same question about, you know, where were you on uh, the night of April 28th, uh, 1984, the night that Denise Haraway disappeared. Right. So they ask him what happened the day that she was kidnapped. They use that language. And Tommy said that he had installed some plumbing at his mother's home with his brother-in-law, Robert Cavins. Then he had showered, walked to Jeanette's around 9 p.m., Carl Fontenot was there and some other people, and they had a party. And this is when the detectives kind of stop him and say, this was not the first story that you told us. So, yeah, that sounds a little bit different from what he said before. I mean, there's still a party there, and it sounds like there's still Carl Fontenot with him, but that's not um, not the exact same thing that he said before. No, there's been some changes. And so the detectives say, you know, do you remember that... Do you remember the first statement that you gave us? Tommy says he doesn't remember. And he goes on to explain that he had gotten mixed up about the days. And so he couldn't keep clear which day was which. The detectives then go on to refresh his memory about his previous story, about going fishing and then to a party. And he says, yeah, that's what I did the day before it happened. I told you the 27th instead of the 28th. So that was, he was clear that, Yes, that story had happened. He had gone fishing. He had been with Carl. But he had his days mixed up. When he had first come in, he had his days mixed up. And now he was clear. Of course, the detectives get this piece of information. And this is the the kind of hook for them. Is now we have an individual telling us two different stories. 
And so, just to be clear, Tommy is saying that when he first spoke to the police, he was confused, and he told them what he had done the day before Denise disappeared. And at, at some point in, in the months that passed, he realized that that he had told them the, the, the incidents from the wrong day. He thought he was telling them what happened on the 28th, realized he'd actually told them what happened on the 27th, and now as he, he's being questioned again, he clears it up. And the other thing that's really interesting about this, if our listeners recall from our first episode when we talked about a little bit about ourselves, my background is that I'm an attorney, and the way that these questions are being set up by the police are uh, classic impeachment that attorneys use on the witness stand to make juries believe that someone is, um, is a liar or can't be trusted. If, if someone has a story that doesn't match up, they go through these exact same questions and re- remind them that they've said something else and then confront them with what they said. Um, so it's really interesting that they're just jumping on that right from the get-go. Immediately. And setting it up, um, setting it up uh, almost as if he's being cross-examined on the stand, which is surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, they came out right... Once they got that piece of information, they really just sort of started hammering it. And they came at it from all these different directions. Um, because Tommy maintained his story throughout this interview, as we'll see as it goes on. story is the same. I had the days mixed up. I I didn't realize when I had first spoke to you what day it was. You know, it was this very innocent sort of, I had the days mixed up. Here's a couple of days. We all hang out together, you know, from one day to another. Some details have gotten blurry. They eventually, Dennis Smith goes on to really say, you know, Quotes that we have, things that you haven't told us the truth, and goes on to say, we have a statement from Jeanette about where you were at that night, and we know that you're not telling us stuff. So he doesn't have a statement from Jeanette saying something different, but it's that sort of, let's just throw as much at this as we can and see if we can get him to tell us the story that we want. The detectives go on to tell Tommy that he and Carl and Jeanette and others were at this party, that it had been Sunday night, and that they had borrowed a pickup, they left, and Tommy actually stops them at some point and says, I don't understand what you're getting at, you know, Sunday night is what she's talking about. It's like this, they are just really trying to confuse him. So they're doing some really intense questioning with him, particularly around, you know, these these two different um these two different stories that he's told of where he was on the night of April 28th, and it sounds like really trying to get him to tell them what Jeff Miller says happened on April 28th. So where does all this questioning lead to? Well, I mean, after yes, after hounding and hounding and you know, going as far as taking out pictures of Denise Haraway and showing them and getting really, really graphic in their questioning and really, really graphic in their accusations. Eventually, after an hour and 45 minutes, so this is an hour and 45 minutes of this is happening, the detectives ask Tommy if he'll come in in a few days and take a lie detector test, which he agrees. It's interesting that Tommy agrees to that. That makes me think that he's telling the truth, especially because he was already nervous about 
talking to the police, that, that would be weird to agree to a lie detector test. But, you know, you never know. Um, so, so he agrees, and what happens? I mean, not only does he agree to a lie detector test, but after an hour and 45 minutes of this conversation, he maintained the same story. Nothing changes. The transcripts of that of that videotape is nothing has changed. So I just want to make a, I want to make that clear too. He he is clear on what the mistake was he had made. He gets he stays with his story, very clear what it is. Um, they ask for the lie detector test. Yeah, he agrees. And at this point, you know, from the detective's perspective, they are convinced going into this lie detector test that they have the person who killed Denise Haraway. They're convinced. Um, the reasons they have, well, the sketch looked like him. They said he seemed, quote, nervous in the interview. And then, of course, the biggest one is this blip in his two stories. Okay. He agrees to the lie detector test. Do they do that right away or that happens later? No. The lie detector test does not actually happen for a few days. So days are going by, and Tommy starts to kind of shift from being very confident that he's doing the right thing and and that he's just going to clear his name to kind of getting nervous. That he's had told Jeanette he's starting to actually have dreams about this case. His nervousness and his anxiety is really getting to him. And he's scared to go in there. When Tommy first leaves the police station, like you said, it's it's a few days before he's going in for that lie detector test. And I think when he first left, he actually... Um, had kind of high spirits just because he thought, okay, this is great. They're going to give me this lie detector test, and then they'll leave me alone. Once I have this lie detector test, they'll see that I'm telling the truth, and everything will be fine. Um, And I, I think at some point during those three days, he just starts to get nervous because... He's going in to talk to the police. And that can make people nervous, especially someone who's had problems with the police in the past. Never for something of this magnitude, um, but I, I think a lot of people get nervous talking to the police. So we've got this, you know, kind of going from feeling really happy that he can clear his name to getting a little nervous. And then it sounds like that nervousness is, is really messing with him. So he starts to have some dreams about the case over these three days while he's uh, waiting to go in and clear his name with the lie detector test. And at any point during these three days, does Tommy ever think about skipping town or running away or anything like that? He was offered money from a friend during that period who said, you know, here, I've got a little bit of money and savings. Why don't you just get out of here? And Tommy didn't want any part of that. He... Though he was getting scared, though he was getting nervous, he, on Monday night, the week of the lie detector test, called his mother and said he was scared to death. You know, he said, I'm afraid they're going to try to get me to say something that I didn't do. And it was really getting to him. But again, the way he was looking at it was, I'm going to take this lie detector test. Yes, I'm scared. Yes, I'm nervous. But it's going to clear my name, and that's what I want to do. Yeah, I think when when he went in for questioning and they were telling him, you know, you're lying about what happened. You said something else. We have this statement that says you were doing something else. 
I think that his thought was, well, if they're doing a lie detector test, then they won't badger me that way because they'll see that I'm telling the truth. So I think his hope was that this next questioning would be different. Um, so why don't we talk about what happened when he arrived uh, at the police station for his lie detector test? So the polygraph was scheduled for a Thursday morning. Tommy was brought to the lie detector test by Mike, Jeanette's husband. So they arrived in the parking lot at 10 o'clock in the morning on Thursday. Right, It was right at, right at time. And so they get there right on time, and Mike waits outside. Tommy goes in for his lie detector test. What happens when he goes into the building? So he's greeted inside the building by Dennis Smith. He's there. He leads him into an office. Smith disappears for a while. Tommy's left to wait for about a half an hour or so, though, you know, his recollection of it is that it felt like hours already. And he, by 1030 around, the police show up and it's Gary Rogers comes out and they introduce Tommy to Agent Rusty Featherstone. Now, Rusty Featherstone is going to be the individual who is going to administer the polygraph. He's been a cop prior to this, and then he joined this agency to give these lie detector tests and had been doing it for a few years. Um, He explains to Tommy how a polygraph works. At 11.05, he is read his Miranda rights. And again, Tommy understands his rights, he says. He agrees to answer all the questions. And he actually says at this point that he does not need a lawyer. So that has been documented. And so the agent goes on to ask Tommy about his activities on April 28th. And he tells the same exact story he had told at the police station. That uh, one, the one he, he told a few days before. Absolutely, absolutely. On and on this questioning goes. So he asks the same questions in different ways. He just really kind of goes over and over and over these different types of questions, but about the same disappearance of Denise and about this date. And there's no break, and the questions go on all the way until 1.30 in the afternoon. And I think Tommy got really specific about his night, like, You know, you said he had had done some plumbing work and he gets really specific and talks about the fact that after that he showers and he leaves at 9 p.m. and goes over to Jeanette's and how long that walk takes and where they go from there. So he really gets into detail about what happened and the questioning started just shortly after 11 a.m. and goes till 1.30 in the afternoon. So, And it sounds like the only thing he was asked about was was what he did on April 28th. So for about two and a half hours, he just over and over told them, you know, what he did that night on April 28th. Right. And the entire time for this two and a half hours of this conversation of really being asked the same thing over and over, Tommy stuck to the same thing, that he denied any knowledge of knowing what had happened to Denise Haraway, that that story did not change for this entire time. And because that story didn't change, and because he was asked in so many different ways and from so many different angles, when that polygraph was over, he was convinced and he felt elated because he 
really thought, okay, this is it. I did great on this, and I'm done. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when when the questions ended, he was told to, to wait, and his thought was, this is great. Once they come back, I will be on my way, and I can put this incident in my rearview mirror and be done with it for the rest of my life. Um, but what actually happens when they come back? Well, Rusty comes back into the room after about five minutes when the conversation is over. He asked Tommy how he thought he did. Tommy replied, I thought that I had passed the test. I think everything went well. Tommy thinks he's leaving. And Rusty Featherstone at this point says, no, you're not leaving, and you've actually flunked the test, so you need to remain seated in this room for me. Wow. And so that's not at all what Tommy's expecting. So what happens from there? Well, of course, Tommy says, there's no way this is what happened. And mind you, the agent has come in, and he's glanced over the paperwork, He's glanced over the the test results and said, no, you flunked it. He doesn't give any backstory as to how that is or how this is known or anything. It's just, no, you flunked. And as Tommy goes on again to say, I have nothing to do with this, the answer that he's given is that polygraphs don't lie and that it's right here on this paper and that you're, he's holding something back and he knows something about the case he's not saying and that he really just needs to uh, unburden himself of this lie and this thing that he's carrying around. And what I find curious about this is that this is coming from an individual who Tommy's had no contact with, who I would assume should be a sort of neutral party to the case, right? So if you have somebody giving a lie detector test, ideally you don't want that person to be super invested in a certain result. Otherwise, we know what that does to test results. Well, and I think though Rusty Featherstone was employed by, you know, by the people who are investigating Tommy for this right. crime. But and he's not a he's not a detective from Ada. He works in Oklahoma City. He works at this different agency. But it is sort of that, you know, blue code of like we're all in this together, you know. Well, and he spent he spent two and a half hours asking these questions and asking about the same night over and over again for two and a half hours. And I'm really curious, and we don't have this information, unfortunately, but I'm curious as to... Assuming that Tommy actually did fail the lie detector test, did he fail it the entire two and a half hours, or did the results show at first that he was consistent, and then as he got more nervous as he was being questioned longer that the polygraph showed that he was lying. And and we don't know. Like I said, we don't have that information. And the one other thing that I want to note is that polygraphs are not allowed to be entered into evidence in a trial because they are notoriously unreliable as far as showing whether or not someone is actually telling the truth because there are a lot of factors that go into a polygraph test. And that's one of the reasons we, we don't have the results is because it, it wasn't introduced at trial. Yeah. The, the problem for me is, is quickly that you have this individual giving him results who 
glanced at this and said, oh, you flunked the test. He's not given any sort of backstory as to, you're right, when did I flunk the whole two and a half hours? You know, what are the results? Nobody else has been the person, or maybe even having a a neutral party read the results would be helpful, Um, something. But that's not what happens. And so once Rusty's is done with him, Gary... So after he informs Tommy that he has failed this lie detector test. Absolutely. Once this happens, in a nearby room, you have Gary Rogers and Dennis Smith, and they are now waiting to to have a go at him. Which makes sense. I mean, they thought that he was lying, and it seems that they, at least in their head, they now have confirmation that he was lying, so now it's their time to, to jump in and get this information that they've been seeking. Right. And so when they are enter the room, and sh- this is shortly after Rusty Featherstone has let Tommy know, um, they come into the room and they take over questioning with Tommy. And this is an immediate change in behavior from the detectives and how they are treating Tommy. Because is this is no longer an interview. This is no longer, hey, we're going to ask you some questions. We're going to get some answers. This goes into pure interrogation. So they start to interrogate him, and what? where does that lead? What happens? What does Tommy say about failing the lie detector test? Well, what we know is that this questioning went on for five hours. So you have questioning that goes for five hours, only interrupted by visits to the bathroom. And that's five hours after the two and a half hours he was questioned on the lie detector test and the hour that he waited before the lie detector test started. Absolutely. So he's now been there well into the day. The detectives have gone out and told Mike at around 5 o'clock that he should leave because we can't forget that Mike is actually waiting in the parking lot. So Mike was told to leave around 5 o'clock and, and then this was still, he was still involved in questioning. That's Mike, uh, Jeanette's, Jeanette's husband. husband, who gave Tommy a ride there. He, yes. He stayed waiting in the parking lot for six hours before someone said, there's no point in waiting He's not going to be done for a while. Yeah, and send him on his way. Wow. Okay, so what, is, what does Tommy say about failing the lie detector well, test? Well, what's, what's interesting is, is this line of questioning goes on. The interrogation goes on for five hours. We do not have transcripts for some of that time because the, the video taping equipment does not get turned on until almost 7 o'clock that night. So... It goes on for hours, but we have no documentation of it. We just have this tape that begins at 6.58 p.m., which shows Tommy Ward sitting in a chair in front of the video camera, and around him is Detective Rogers and Smith and Rusty Featherstone. So Tommy was at the police station for eight hours before they turned the video camera on. Nothing is recorded. We have the documentation of... The lie detector test, we have the accounts of Tommy and what that timeline is. We have Mike telling us at 5 o'clock they were, he was told to leave. We have that. We know how long the lie detector went on. But there is a huge pocket of time where there is no video. There is no recording of what this interrogation was, how this went. And we just have a camera that gets switched on at 6.58 p.m. with Tommy and these officers sitting around him. So let's talk about 
what we do know about what happened between 1.30 p.m. and 7 p.m. when the camera went on. And there came a time, and we'll talk about this later, how it came about, but Tommy wrote out his recollection of what happened during that time, and he wrote it out pretty soon after that interrogation. And it's really interesting what Tommy wrote. Uh, Also makes it, I think, very clear that Tommy's level of education probably isn't very high. His grammar and his spelling and his sentence structures in what he wrote is very remedial and, and kind of points towards someone that that doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of education. So in Tommy in Tommy's recollection of what of what happened, he talks about those hours that the camera wasn't on. And one of the first things he says is that when they told him that he flunked the test, they told him you must you must have played a part in what happened to Denise or you must know something about it, otherwise you wouldn't have flunked this test. And Tommy's response was that he must have flunked because he had been having dreams about the case. And that, at least from what he's written, you know, he thinks that that could be the the only thing that would explain why he failed this polygraph test because he didn't actually know anything about the case. And so then he gets asked, you know, what did he dream about? And Tommy tells them what he dreamt about. He dreamt that he was at a keg party and he was sitting in a pickup with two guys and a girl and that one of the guys started to kiss the girl but was told that, you know, she wanted to be left alone. And then at some point he looks in the window and they're at a power plant and one of the guys is gone And Tommy says he wants to go home, and then they said he was at home, and he looks out, and he's at home. And then he, all of a sudden, is at the sink in his house, and he's trying to wash something off of his hands, and it wouldn't come off, and then he woke up. So very much like like what a dream is, right? Like, very weird, it doesn't follow any sort of natural timeline like he's in a truck he's with this girl they're by a power plant then he's back at his house like none and one person's gone other people are still there none of it actually makes any sense Mm -hmm. Uh, but this is what he tells the officer because he wants to explain to them why it is that he must have failed this polygraph test and the response is that his dream doesn't make any sense which that does make sense. The dream wouldn't make sense. And and Tommy says to Detective Smith, well, dreams don't make sense. And Detective Smith responds and, and actually tells Tommy, you know, those two guys, they must have been Odell Titsworth and Carl Fontenot. And we'll talk about both of those people more. Detective Smith says, is that who it was? Tommy says, I, I don't know. I don't know who it was. It was a dream. And they say, you know, it must have it must have been them. And you and Carl and Odell, you went out to the store and you, you kidnapped the girl and you took her to the power plant to kill her. And 
Tommy talks to them even more about this dream, and it kind of goes downhill from there, right? Absolutely. The dream, talking about the dream was the worst thing that could have happened. Because what goes on later is you have this recording that... De- now, this is what he's talking... Tommy is talking about what happened in those hours where we have no recording. And then when the recording does come up, basically, we have Tommy talking again very, very similarly to what the details are in this dream that he had been talking about. So there are quite a few hours that aren't accounted for on video from after the polygraph test around 1.30 in the afternoon all the way up until almost 7 o'clock in the evening. And this is when he's he's being questioned for hours and hours about this dream that he started to talk about. And, you know, like I said, the detectives said that you know, you took you took her to this uh, power plant and you killed her. At some point, at least based on Tommy's recollection of it, he says, I decided that I would play their, their little game so that they could see themselves. It was a bunch of bull. That's where I made my mistake. So then I told them that Carl and Odell was in my dream and we left the cake party then, poof, we was at Evangelist Temple and smoking a joint. And this is this is what Tommy wrote, and it, it has this not not so great grammar in it. And the agent says you kidnapped her, and he says no. And the agent says, yeah, you did. You and Carl did. And you know Tommy didn't say anything back, and it goes on and on like this for a while. And then the officer says, what did you do while Carl was in the store? And Tommy says that he lied to the officer and said that. Tommy jumped into the back of the pickup truck. And then he says, no, that wasn't in my dream. So it seems like like Tommy's kind of really going back and forth with this dream and making stuff up. And on the one hand, he wants to... He's trying to explain to the cops that it's a dream. And then on the other hand, it sounds like the cops are pressuring him into the fact that it's not a dream. And that he has this impression that, okay, if I play along with the cops and say it's not a dream... They'll go out to these places that were in my dream and they will see that none of this is true and this will all get cleared up. I mean, he really is going off of this idea through, you know, throughout this narrative where he's gone in to talk to the police that things are just going to get cleared up. And they haven't so far, not from the polygraph, not from anything else. Uh, and I'm not sure that playing along here with the cops about his dream is going to help clear that up either. No, and I think it is that kind of classic sort of naive approach to the police and this kind of how much trouble he's actually in, as well as, you know, an individual who, yeah, maybe is got some cognitive stuff happening or isn't super educated, you know. That is the problem with this kind of situation is you have police coming at somebody who doesn't really stand a chance in defending themselves and is trying these different approaches and really these approaches are getting him into more trouble. Absolutely. As you'll recall in episode one we talked about how Gene Welchel actually walked by Denise and the person who walked out with her and the cops even start to question Tommy about you know was there another guy at the convenience store did you see somebody else there 
And Tommy's like, no, that wasn't in my dream. And and the police continue to pressure him about it. And so he, he says in his description, I lied and I said, I seen a guy leaning up against the ice machine. So even when he's being pressured and he adds lies about what was in his dream, they don't match what actually happened. This goes on and on, you know, like we said, for hours... They delve into this dream. They ask him more about it. Tommy finally starts to agree with the cops about things that happened in the dream. Eventually, Tommy even tells the police that in his dream, Odell Titsworth and Carl Fontenot both raped Denise. And the cops pressure Tommy and say, well, you you raped her too. And Tommy's response to that is, no, that wasn't in my dream. It just it just goes downhill more and more from Tommy's recollection of what happened during those hours. And, you know, like I said, we we basically only have uh, what Tommy wrote out about what happened during those hours. We don't have anything else much to go off of. Um, Nicole, I know you're going to touch in a minute a little bit more about uh, some other things that came out of uh, these hours and hours of questioning. Uh, eventually, Tommy says in the dream that they might have taken her to this concrete uh, bunker and put her in a house, uh, and that you know that was where they ended up taking her at the end of the dream. And Tommy was thinking, you know, that they would go and look for this concrete bunker in real life and see that it wasn't true and see that there was no body there and that none of this actually happened. And Tommy's recollection is that then the agent says, I'm tired of hearing about this dream BS. I just want you to tell what happened in your dream. And Tommy said, okay, if that is what you want to know about... And then he gave his statement. He says, then during my statement, I know I did say this was just a dream. They must have cut it out because I was looking down at the mic when I said it or might not. I might not have said it loud enough because I didn't want them to hear me say it. And we also find out that that he's giving this information and he's giving these locations with the idea that the police will go and check and they will not find anything. And then as a result, he will be set free. But they are sending a police officer out there because during this entire time, Mike Baskin is back in Ada. He stayed behind in Ada during this trip to Oklahoma City. He is getting a phone call from Gary Rogers, the detective, He gets three phone calls over this course of time where he is sent out to three different locations that he is sure is going to be the place where they're going to find Denise Haraway because these are the locations that Tommy is giving. He's giving this bunker. He's giving out by the power plant. He drives out three different times, and each time he comes back with nothing. So this idea, this sort of naive thinking that, I will send them out there, they won't find anything, and then that'll be my my ticket out, doesn't actually work. So it sounds like every time they're sending Mike Baskin out and they find that like what Tommy is saying isn't actually accurate, they hound Tommy to get a new story, and then they send they Mike send Baskin him out again. there. Yeah. So they eventually turn the camera on and record this confession. 
Yes. And this is where it kind of picks up in exactly as Tommy has written, is that there is this moment where they kind of time it perfectly, right? So 6.58, this camera gets switched on. You have Tommy sitting in front of the video camera. He's with the, the three different agents, Featherstone, Smith, and Rogers. And for 31 minutes, the three officers asked Ward questions while the videotape is going. And he's Tommy's in the video. He's smoking a cigarette. He's kind of slunched over. And he goes on to say how he and Carl Fontenot and a man named Odell Titsworth kidnapped Denise, drove her to a power plant on the outskirts of town, raped her and cut her, and how he, Tommy, had eventually gone on to leave, but that the other stayed, killed her, and tossed her off a concrete bunker out near Sandy Creek. And they, he also went on to describe this knife very, 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 very um, in detail. In next week's episode, we'll get even into even more detail about Tommy's confession and read some quotes of what was said in this confession and really delve into the content of the confession. Uh, But yeah, like you said, he mentions Odell Titsworth and Carl Fontenot. And when all is said and done, the cops say, well, we're going to find out what Carl Fontenot and Odell Titsworth have to say about this. Right. And so, and then his interview is done. The camera is switched off. Um, it had gone on at 6.58. By 7.29, it's, it's switched off. Handcuffs are placed on Tommy, and he is put in a cell in Oklahoma City, and Smith and Rogers go back to Ada, and we should also say that he is not charged with anything at this point. Wow. And that's, I mean, that's that seems strange that he's not being charged. They're putting handcuffs on him. I mean, presumably they're locking him up because they think that this confession of a dream is actually a confession of something that Tommy really did. Um, So it, it seems strange that they wouldn't charge him, but you know, maybe, maybe that's actually a good thing. Maybe that's them wanting to do some more detective work around Tommy's story before they actually charge him. Well, I think, sure, that would be a great idea, but that I don't believe is what happened because the next morning they actually go on to call a press conference. They don't call Jeanette or Mike to let him let them know that Tommy's not coming home. They go to the press the very next day. They say, we believe we have the person who killed Denise Haraway. They give Tommy Ward's name, and they say he has confessed to the murder and rape of Denise Haraway. The very next morning in the local press before he's actually had any formal charges and before he's even had a chance to talk to any attorney whatsoever or his family or his family and i'm he has family of his own but also at this point in time he's living with jeanette and mike and and they're like family family. Mm -hmm. um or the the actual members of his family his his mom or his sisters or anyone like that Now, let's talk about what the investigators do after they get this confession from Tommy. 
So you mentioned the cameras go off at 7.29 p.m. That's Thursday night. That's the end of Tommy's confession. And the next day, on Friday afternoon, the cops tracked down Carl, who I think was a little bit difficult to find um, because he was living with some friends. And Carl really doesn't have very much family so Carl is staying with friends, and it, it seems like this is a pretty common thing that Carl stays with different people. Anyway, the police find him by Friday afternoon. Uh, they say, you know, we need to ask you some questions. Can you step outside? And as soon as he steps outside, they throw him in the back of a police car, and they take him down to the police station. And I don't think that they've done much other investigation around Tommy's confession outside of um, going to these different places during the the interrogation the night before. Um, and then I think, you know, one of the first things they do is, is go find Carl, and we'll talk in a minute about how they also went to go find Odell Titsworth, the other person who was mentioned in Tommy's confession. So and, you're saying they quickly grabbed him and just they showed up with very little information and said, you need to come down and, and ask, we have some questions for you yeah. regarding Denise Haraway. Well, they said, we need to ask some questions for you. And then when he stepped outside, they just threw him in the back of the car and took him uh, to the police station. So they got to the police station and they start questioning him pretty much right away. And Carl completely denies being involved. Um, and at this point, you know, they have Tommy's confession and Tommy's statement. So, you know, they're telling him, you know, we have this information. You said this. And Carl was interrogated for almost two hours before a video camera was switched on. And and do we have any information about those two hours like we have with Tommy? Do we have any any kind of first-hand account of what happened during those two hours? Unfortunately, we don't. There isn't any sort of, as far as we know, anything in-depth that Carl wrote about what happened when he was questioned. You know, we got lucky in, in the fact that Tommy was asked to write down everything he could remember and that that, that is something that's accessible to us. And that's something that we got out of the, the book Dreams of Ada by Robert Mayer, who we... Um, featured on it on an earlier episode but we don't have anything like that for Carl and I don't think anything like that necessarily exists so there's very little information about what happened during those two hours before the camera gets turned on but eventually the camera is turned on and Carl also gives a confession to the crime he says that him and Tommy Ward and Odell Titsworth uh, kidnapped Denise Haraway and that they um, took turns raping her and then they killed her and disposed of the body and and that really kind of seals the deal for the police that you know this must not be a dream that Tommy's talking about that there must be truth behind it because now they have Carl confessing to it as well 
and... Right, but we don't know that it came to the police like, oh, we're so surprised we're getting another confession. We don't actually know what happened during those hours of questioning. We don't know what tactics were used. We don't know what was said. We don't know if the dream had been told to him already or this confession that Tommy had made. Absolutely. And actually, next week's episode, we're really going to focus completely on the actual content of the confessions and, and try to delve into that and really um, and really find out, you know, how did these confessions come out? Are these reliable confessions? And, and really try to look at that closely. So we'll talk about that a lot more next week as well. Well, also talking about it as a larger, broader conversation around false confessions. There's a lot of information now. Um, You know, visit the Innocence Project and you will get tons of information about what false confessions are and actually how often they happen. But at this point, we have, you know, some moderate information about what happened with Carl. And then he gets arrested as well. And he gets put into a cell. And so the next step for the police is to go find Odell Titsworth, who at this point now, both Carl and Tommy have talked about Odell Titsworth being there. Both Carl and Tommy talk about Odell Titsworth really being the ringleader. And he's someone who has a bit of a criminal past, much more so than Tommy or Carl, and I think much more... um, more aggravated uh, crimes on his rap sheet uh, than you'll find on Tommy's rap sheet. So this is someone who is, you know, really of interest to the police, someone they want to grab and and really get his confession as well and, and see how it matches up with Tommy and Carl's confession and, and try to solve this case and find Denise. Um, or at this point, you know, find her body so that her family can properly mourn, have a proper burial, and so on. And so the next stop is to go find Odell Titsworth. And, Nicole, do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened when the police went to go find him? Yeah, so they... And also, mind you, they are now looking for Odell Titsworth because they believe he has been the ringleader of this. Um, He had a pickup truck. He had a switchblade knife. He had done the actual killing that he is now focused in on is he has been the one who is really was in charge of all of this. So the police locate Odell and they bring him back to Ada for questioning. Now, he is subjected to a much more aggressive line of questioning than Carl and Fontenot, mostly because he has a long felony, you know, record and he is kind of known as a cop hater. That's the term that had been used to describe him often. But Odell Titsworth because of that, also has a lot more experience being on that end with of the police. An interrogation. Absolutely. So, um, and it should be noted that no videotape is made of the conversation that they have with Odell. So, even though they believe him to be the ringleader, they do not document any part of their conversation with him. And so, after this time with Odell, they lock him in a solitary confinement cell in the county jail. So now we have all three individuals have now been confined, but no formal charges have been placed. And the police go into what they need to talk to the press about. Um, 
I am surprised with how quickly the pol- they the police in this case go to the press. They go to the press immediately. They do it immediately after their um, holding of Tommy, though he's been charged with nothing formally. Again, now we have three individuals in custody. No formal charges have been placed. Yet the, fol- the police flush out a story. And it is going to be that Tommy Ward, Carl Fontenot, and Odell Titsworth have raped and murdered Den- Donna Denise Haraway. And that they've disposed of her body in an area west of Ada. Um, they even go on to say that her remains are going to be in a burned out house and that an initial search has turned up some bone, what is believed to be jawbone. Though the medical examiner immediately discredited that as not even being human. So this is how much they are just kind of throwing information out, throwing it out to the press. Yeah, we found bone out there, no charges. That's not even actually human bone. And that they're... They're, they leave the press with this. Three individuals will probably be charged on this following Monday. So they, you know, they got this confession, and they're really running with it without doing a whole lot of investigation around the confession. And they're running with it without doing police work is really what they're doing. They're not doing any police work or detective work. They And they surely are not... Um, following what would ideally be kind of the good practices when we're looking at legality stuff. So I think that's a perfect place to leave off for this episode. And what we're going to do next week, on next week's episode, we are planning to have a special guest who is going to talk to us a lot about confessions. Uh, He's someone with a lot of background in the area And I think that our listeners will really enjoy that. And after we talk to him about confessions in general, uh, we'll do something similar to what we did with the episode where we interviewed Laura Bricker. And we'll go through these confessions uh, from Carl and Tommy and and compare them to that interview and, and talk about whether or not these seem like reliable confessions. And then the other thing that we'll talk about next week is why we aren't mentioning a confession from Odell Titsworth. And Odell had a very interesting alibi, and we'll get into that more next week. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting. I I really feel like it's going to be an amazing opportunity for us to look at these confessions and really break down from an expert how confessions work, um, what are bad practices, what are good practices. Um, Because I think reading them, confessions are often looked at as like, well, there's a confession, it's a closed case. And I think what is so fascinating to me and what really draws me to this case and other cases like it is how do these confessions um, come about? What are techniques and what are ways to get people to agree to things that they wouldn't normally agree to? Absolutely, absolutely. So make sure to join us next Thursday for the next episode of Unraveled so that you can hear all about that. Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this case unravel.